listeners, this is Mark with some quick thoughts before we start our show. I recently went on Twitter and I asked people there if they thought two years of COVID, and more specifically, the resulting great resignation, would be the catalyst for the leadership change this podcast is focused on bringing about. And it was disheartening to read so many responses which argued that greed in business almost guarantees the change won't happen. And many people question whether most companies and their CEOs truly value people or if they just create the appearance of caring. Around the same time, I asked 35 undergraduate students at Northern Arizona University if they thought more companies would come to emulate the SAS Institute, a company I wrote about in my book that embodies the lead from the heart philosophy and was the first organization ever to be named the best U.S. and best global workplace. Gen Z students were quick to point out that SAS, as a privately owned firm, has had over 40 years of annual record revenue, extremely low turnover, and remarkable innovations. And despite the sustained success, students conveyed great cynicism in saying that they hold out little hope that shareholders of publicly traded firms would ever support organizations where people come first. You know, all this skepticism is a reflection of all of us and how we all lead. And so if we want to see workplace leadership pivot to a new model, we must be the ones who will do it. We can kick the can down the road and hope others will lead the change, or we can be the ones to do it with our teams and within our organizations. I hope you'll rise to the occasion because how we manage today certainly isn't working. And the feedback from my Twitter connections and NAU students admittedly took a lot of wind out of my sails. So as we start the podcast, let me ask you, if not now, then when? Let's get to our show. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and let me officially welcome you to the Lead from the Heart podcast. One of the most popular classes at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business is called Becoming a Changemaker. And if you think about it, the course's popularity very strongly hints at the idea that many people, us included, and Gen Z apparently included, possess a very deep desire to, as Steve Jobs once said, leave their dent in the universe. In other words, they personally want to make a positive and meaningful change in the world and are seeking guidance on how to make it happen. Haas Business School professor Alex Budick created the class to teach students the uncommon mindsets and leadership skills needed to navigate, shape, and lead a change initiative. And now he's written a book to teach those same practices to us. His book, Becoming a Change Maker, an actionable guide to leading positive change at any level just came out, and I was anxious to have him join us to discuss it. Alex believes, as I do, by the way, that all of us have the potential to be change makers, and that's an encouraging thought with which to begin our conversation. So with that, let me welcome you to the Leap from the Hard podcast, Alex Budick. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome. Thank you so very much. You have a wildly popular class at Cal, UC Berkeley, that teaches students how to become a change maker. And as I was reading your book, it summarizes everything you teach. And I'd like you to start us off by giving a definition of what you call a change maker, and then really get into what I thought is the most provocative part of the book, which is this idea that like, I think you're implying that all of us have this calling to be a change maker in the world in some respects. So let's start there. Yeah, that's right. Thanks for that, Mark. I define change making as leading positive change from wherever you are. 
Now, it's a purposefully egalitarian, purposely open, radically inclusive definition of change-making. It makes no call out to specific roles, responsibilities, even sectors. It's an invitation for all of us to lead positive change from wherever they are. And you're exactly right that that's the fundamental belief. It's the heartbeat of my teaching and of my book, this belief that each and every one of us can be change-makers. I love the language, heartbeat. Do we all want to? So in other words, is the appeal of your class, the idea that you have the blueprint for doing it, but people are already motivated to be change makers in their lives? It's a great question. And I think there's two ways to think about that. I do fundamentally at my core believe that each of us has this sort of latent change maker inside of us. And so how tapped into it we are may vary a bit. But I also would argue that given the pace and rate of change around the world today, we don't really have much of a choice to not be a change maker. Think, for instance, about what happened in the early days of COVID when the world completely transformed within a couple of weeks. Most business leaders, most individuals, companies faced two choices. It was either remain the same and run the risk of no longer existing in a couple months or finding ways to change and adapt. Now, that sounds dramatic, I know, but I do think that there's not just an opportunity on the positive end, there's a real need for each of us to become change makers as well. Well, you said something that I don't know that I always agree with, which is that we don't have a choice to not be a change maker. I think we do. In other words, there's a choice. Do I have the courage to step up and either lead in a different way or act in a different way or encourage others to behave in a different way if we're not in a leadership management role. So when you say we don't have a choice, do you really mean that? I mean that there's such an obligation, such an opportunity that we need to do it. But you're exactly right that it always starts with making that conscious choice, a conscious choice to serve, a conscious choice to step up and to give ourselves permission to lead as well. So yeah, it, is more of an imperative, perhaps, but really a huge opportunity for each of us to step up as change makers. As a faculty member, the greatest privilege I have is throughout the semester when I teach, there's this magical moment that happens for pretty much every student, where at some point in the course of the class, this light bulb goes off in their head and they go, whoa, I can be a change maker. For some students, it happens in week one, you know, the first lecture. Some it takes maybe halfway through the semester, but I can literally see that in their faces and their demeanor when they have that insight, when they realize ah, that a latent change maker inside of me, I'm ready to bring it out. And that's what I live for as an educator, as an instructor. And that's what I hope this book will also bring out of readers. So are they coming into this class hoping you're going to turn on that light for them? It's a probably combination of things. Some come in really ready to go. Some already even have ideas of the changes they want to lead. And others, honestly, just hear that the class is fun and they just want to be part of it. And I think in that case, they don't really have a notion that they're going to become a change maker, but still the concepts resonate with them and they can take that step. So coincidentally, I think you know this, my son is a Cal graduate and actually took classes at the Haas Business School. And so I'm very familiar with the kinds of people that go there, the students that go there. And they tend to be very, very smart for one, but also very accomplished. These are very motivated people that go to Cal, Berkeley. And so I'm just wanting to pin this down. 
Could you teach this class at any other university and find the same interest and demand? 100%. Maybe I would shape it a little bit differently. One of the things that I do teaching at Haas is I anchor the topics in the actual defining leadership principles, the culture of Haas. So as you talk about, there is something special about Berkeley. One of our defining leadership principles is questioning the status quo. And that might be something that comes a little bit more naturally to a Berkeley student than to someone else. But I firmly believe that this class could exist at other universities as well. That said, I'm so grateful to have found the home at Berkeley, but I think these principles are, are universal. But the desire is universal. That's what I'm looking to pin down. Yeah, I think the desire is there as well, especially among the Gen Z students that I'm teaching. There is such a hunger to be part of something bigger than themselves and be, to be part of bigger change initiatives. Where does that come from? So I've had the pleasure of getting to know Gen Z, and I am so bullish on, on Gen Z. When I work with them, I always remind them that, look, when you look around at the, the world around you, you have every reason to feel a bit frustrated, to feel a bit hopeless. When you look at so many of the challenges that they are inheriting from racial injustice to climate injustice to mental health challenges, but I try to encourage them to say, still find reason to be hopeful nonetheless. And in that hope, you can often find agency. And that's where I believe that they can go lead change. So I think Gen Z is acutely aware of the challenges that are facing our communities, our companies, even our world. But in them, I see a desire to do something about it, not just to sit on the sidelines. This gets off a little bit of track, but you mentioned mental health. And I have read a lot lately about Gen Z having deeper challenges with mental health than perhaps previous generations. So I'm curious as to if you could speak to that just briefly in the sense that you're seeing these students, obviously they're showing up at number one public school in the country. So they're thriving in some respects, but is there something else going on in this generation that would be helpful for leaders to understand it just specifically with respect to mental health? It's a, such an important question. And I should say upfront that I'm not an expert in mental health, but I look to the work that Lori Santos at Yale has done. She, of course, teaches this super popular class on happiness. And her research has found that four in 10 Gen Z students in her class are dealing with either anxiety or depression, so 40%. And so as you think about teaching a class of 100 people, that's 40 students. Now, on one hand, I think they're dealing with a lot of external exogenous factors. But the other side that I'm also very hopeful about is I think Gen Z is more comfortable talking about mental health than other generations are. And I think that's a really good thing to be able to talk about honestly and openly and to advocate for what they need. Thank you. Yeah, I just think it's an important topic right now. And you're right in the thick of it, seeing these students just to transition here. We're going to talk about your book in more detail, but big picture. What prevents most of us from accomplishing our dream of being a change maker? Is it just lack of courage or are there other things that hold us back? Yeah, I love that you mentioned courage. That's one of the big things. And what's so interesting is in my class and in the book, I don't overtly teach courage. But when students reflect back on the main things that they learned in the class, they often talk about courage. So it's something that's sort of inherent in becoming a change maker is finding that courage. So I think that's one really big thing. And the second thing is the sense of agency, that there are so many opportunities to lead change all around us. But there's also all too many reasons to say, ah, that's for someone else to do. Whether that's looking at the scale of a problem and saying, I couldn't possibly fix climate change on my own, so I better not try all the way to just seeing a small issue and wondering, well, maybe someone else will take care of that or pondering, who am I to lead change? 
And so one of the most important cognitive shifts that change makers make is when they have that sense of agency from change making is something that other people do to change making something that I can do. And I think such an important aspect of finding that agency is seeing yourself in other people. So I'm a big believer that you can't be what you can't see. And in the book, I do 50 plus case studies of different change makers everywhere from some household names to people you've never heard of. Someone like a sales associate at Walmart who fought to have equal parental rights between the hourly sales associates and the executives. It's so important to see a little bit of ourselves in these different change makers because that then gives us permission to say, well, if they can do that, then I can too. I hadn't thought to ask you this, but tell us the story about this woman at Walmart because I found it fascinating. And I have spoken on this podcast before and have written, particularly on Twitter, that I don't have a lot of admiration for Walmart specifically because they have a longstanding history of really exploiting people. And I know that there are changes underway. But what I found fascinating was that the company itself put her on a stage and let her tell her story about changing a policy that the company itself created. So dig into that. Yeah, that's right. So this is the story of Carolyn Davis, also known as Kat Davis. And so she's from this small town called Bayborough, North Carolina. It's a population of 1,200 people. And like so many changemakers, she didn't get into it because she wanted to get attention to herself or she felt like she had to do something. It's because she saw an opportunity to lead change, to advocate for others, and she stepped up. So she started talking with one of her friends who was about to give birth to her first child. And like so many parents and so many moms, especially, this person was dealing with the terrible situation so many in this country are dealt with, which is how do I make sure I spend time with my new kid? How do I take care of myself after giving birth? How do I not lose my job? How do I keep the income coming into my family? And Kat realized, well, there's something I can do about that. She was a mother of two grown children and one grandchild. And so she had her own personal lived experience. And she said, well, look, it doesn't seem fair to me that executives get all this really good parental leave, but sales associates get just a fraction of that. And she ended up leading a huge movement, but it started off small. She started off just by talking to other sales associates and saying, hey, is this something that you feel strongly about as well? From there, she realized, okay, well, there are some people that feel this way. I'm going to start a petition. And the next thing she knew, she had thousands and thousands of people signing this petition. Now, something I think is powerful is that there were a lot of people willing to sign their name. But also with the power of Walmart, a lot of people didn't want to sign their name. They would just send her emails and say, hey, thanks for fighting the right fight. But, you know, I just am not comfortable signing. But eventually she got thousands of signatures and she and some of her colleagues delivered a box of signatures to the Walmart headquarters. And at that point, they had Walmart's attention. So then at an upcoming meeting of shareholders, she got a three minute talk where she introduced herself, made her pitch. And she says that whereas a number of people before her had been greeted by booze or indifference, she started getting some shouts of yeah and some claps. And she realized that she was onto something. So she started off in such a small way, really just looking out for this one person around her, her one friend. But she ended up catalyzing change in Walmart. And she ended up being successful in getting them to change the policies. So that way, the parental leave policies for hourly sales associates became the same as for executives. I mean, it's a really illustrative story of somebody having massive courage. The policy was that senior managers in the company had a much better maternity leave policy, much more generous 
than the rank and file employees, and she sought to change that. So thinking about making a change in an organization like that, I don't know if you had an opportunity to speak with her, but was she nervous that the company was going to kind of squelch her efforts and and tell her to stop? Because we're talking about courage here, and we're talking about someone who was a store employee who had a major, major change and in influence on how the company operated. And I think it sort of speaks to what you're talking about here, but I'm also curious as the backstory. Yeah, I mean, her courage here was absolutely huge to think about leading this change in spite of tremendous power imbalances. But what she said is that it was all the people behind her that gave her the faith. She said, to have a group behind you giving you support, it makes a huge difference and that there's power in numbers. And so I think like so many change makers who are servant leaders who serve first, she really saw her opportunity to be a conduit for this change that other people needed. I think that's what gave her some faith to keep going despite the huge power imbalances. Tell us about the change maker's mindset. What are the key beliefs that we must possess in order to influence change in the world? Yeah, and so of course, change making can feel like it's a little bit fuzzy, but I'm in the world of business, of academia, where we actually need to be measuring things. So I started something called the Changemaker Index, which is a longitudinal study to look at how changemakers develop over time, both before they take my class and after and then well beyond longitudinally. And so we look at what are some of the traits that all changemakers have in common, regardless of sector or role or age or experience. And a number of them start with certain changemaker mindset traits. So two of the things that I see that are super important here, one is inability and willingness to question the status quo. And the second is resilience. Being a changemaker means stepping up, failing, getting rejected and continuing on in spite of that. So those are two of the things that stand out the most is questioning the status quo and being resilient. So it's the second part that I want to dig into, which is I think that sometimes we think, well, I want to try to initiate some change, but I'm also concerned that if I'm unsuccessful, that I'm going to look like a failure or even worse. So how do we best respond to setbacks or even resistance to the very ideas we're trying to spread? Like, what are you teaching your students? That's so right. So the first thing I like to do is change the way we think about the concept of resilience. You know, so often, and I think especially here in the Silicon Valley Bay Area, we tend to define resilience as simply enduring as much pain as possible, just getting knocked down, getting back up, getting knocked down. But I like thinking about it in a slightly different way. Instead, I define resilience as staying strong for the long haul. So that means, of course, failing and failing forward and overcoming it, but also having some deliberate practices that make you better able to adapt to the inevitable setbacks that will come. And now it's one thing to sort of intellectually understand that failure is important, but I'm also a big believer in experiential learning and actually getting out and doing it yourself. So in my class, and I also share this exercise in the book, We spend a couple hours talking about failure. We do some social science research. We do a few case studies. And then I flash up two words on the screen. Go, fail. And students sort of look at me and think that I'm kidding. But then I go, I'm not kidding. And go to the next slide, which says, okay, you have 10 minutes. You have to go leave the classroom. And you have to go ask for something and get rejected. You can't come back into the classroom until you've gotten a no. And it's amazing standing at the front of the classroom where I start seeing students sweat a little bit, they turn red, they're giggling nervously, but they realize that I'm for real. Of course, I believe in giving students psychological safety. So I also say, 
okay, if you feel uncomfortable, I'll be in the front of the room. I'll mentor you. I'll coach you. I'll kind of help support you in this. But yeah, I'm serious. You have 10 minutes. Go out and get rejected. It's amazing to see how students respond to this challenge. They shut the classroom so nervously, but then they come back and the energy is just off the charts. They are so bubbling with excitement once they've come back and been rejected. And what we find is usually one of two things happens. So the first is about 33% of the time, about one third of the time, students ask for something that they think is ridiculous, that they know will get a rejection, and they actually get a yes. I think about a student who, it was raining, and they asked another student, hey, I forgot my umbrella. Would you mind walking me across campus to my other class? And to his complete shock, the other student said, yeah, sure, no problem. The student was willing to walk 30 minutes out of his way <laughs> to help a complete stranger. Then I think of the woman who walked into the school gym and announced, hi, everyone. It's not my birthday, but would you please sing happy birthday to me? And she got a whole gym of people to sing happy birthday to her. So about one third of people get shocked when they actually get what they want. Then for the other two thirds, they realize, well, okay, failure isn't fatal. I got rejected. No one laughed at me. I go on about my day. And it actually felt good because it's a small step in developing some of that courage. The more we can practice failing and realize that we can get better as a result of it, the more courageous we'll be to make even better and more important asks. How do you create a culture if you're a leader? You said you're a big believer in experiential learning, but a lot of times people don't want to stick their neck out because they're afraid of looking stupid in the eyes of their boss, right? So how does a workplace manager encourage a team, individual employees, to be a change maker specifically, but also just to take some risks to be willing to fail or have a setback? It's such a good question. And I guess I'll start with the wonderful work of Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School. So she's the person behind a concept called psychological safety. And that's the idea that a team is safe for taking interpersonal risks. And so she's done amazing work to show, well, how can we create psychological safety? And one of the keys, for instance, is showing humility as a leader, not showing up expecting that you have all the answers. And the second is making sure that people feel confident to challenge you as a leader, that when people stand up for something, that you don't punish them for having done so. But in terms of operationalizing and making it very practical, one of the things that I always do with my teams is in our weekly meeting, we ask two questions of every teammate. So every teammate will go around the circle, everyone answers. The first is, what was your win of the week? What's the thing you did that moved us closer to our goals? And then secondly, what was your failure of the week and what did you learn from it? What we try to do here is, one, create a culture where people are not just okay failing, but they're expected to fail. If someone doesn't have a good failure in that week, we say, well, hey, that's maybe a sign that you weren't pushing the envelope hard enough. Maybe it's time to question the status quo a little bit more. And secondly, by making sure that all of us are sharing our failures, even the leader, it makes it safe for all of us to share our failures. We're modeling that culture from the top. And in doing so, we, of course, aren't celebrating just any failure, right? So not responding to a, a, an important email isn't in of itself a good failure. But if you can generate learning from the failure, that's where new insights come. So I think it's important to, one, start with psychological safety, and then, two, build in some deliberate practices. For instance, asking how people failed each week to make that part of the culture. That's fantastic. That's really, really wonderful. A couple things. One is Amy Evanson is one of only two people who have ever been on this podcast twice. 
have nothing but massive admiration for her and her insights on psychological safety. And also to the third of people who asked someone to do something that they thought was outrageous and then got them to agree to it, Zoe Chance from Yale in her book about persuasion says exactly that. Like, ask people because you'd be surprised what people are willing to do for you if you simply ask. So often, simple change is just asking someone to do something different, behave somewhat different, think somewhat differently, perceive a problem differently. And it's just, hey, could you just do this? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we're really surprised by that. So anyway, just to pin that down. You believe, transitioning here, that change makers must be servant leaders. And I shouldn't even tip my hand here, but I still struggle with the language servant leader. And so I'd like to ask you, tell us what it looks like to be a servant leader, whether you believe that term holds up well today and why you believe it's the most effective way to manage. Sure. And so servant leadership is Robert Greenleaf's term, which can feel a little bit dated now, I think. I use it because a lot of people recognize it. But I think I prefer the term, and this is, again, embedded in the Haas defining leadership principles. I prefer something called beyond yourself leadership. I think about beyond yourself leadership as being ethical, thinking for the long term, and having a vision for change. So in that case, I like thinking about called servant leadership or called beyond yourself leadership, where the role of a leader is to look out for the team around them. Simon Sinek, of course, calls this leaders eat last. But having this mindset that ultimately what you want to do is make sure those on your team are at their very best. And that could go from anywhere from like the big picture of standing up to injustices that someone on your team might feel, all the way to the small and logistic sort of tackling and blocking of like just making sure they have all of the tools they need to do their best work. And so, yeah, I'm a big believer in called beyond yourself leadership, but this idea of looking out for those around you as as leader. Are you teaching that in your class? And if so, how does that fit? I do. So we, we do a couple of things, but one of the things that we start with is looking at visions. I think vision is an important part about what separates someone who can go beyond yourself versus kind of thinking internally. And so one of the projects we do is we look at a vision statement should be both clear and compelling. So we take some time in the class where students get to research their favorite company, their favorite organization, and try to find that vision statement. And then we mark them up on the board. So we, I created an, an axis where they have clear on one side, compelling on the vertical. And then students get to mark down, well, where on this matrix would you put this company? And so we take a look at these company vision statements and see, well, which ones are clear? Which ones are compelling? Which ones aren't? And what can we learn about that? Because I think starting with that sense of vision of having something bigger than oneself, that's a powerful place to start. And since we're all dealing with these companies every day, we can see, well, how does Nike think about this? Or how does... United Way think about this and what can we learn from that? So what organizations have the most clear and compelling visions? So one of my favorite comes from Nike. So their vision statement is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. What I love about that is it may not feel inclusive off the bat, but they have an asterisk on the word athlete. And it says on the asterisk, if you have a body, you are an athlete, meaning they're thinking for everyone. I also love the vision statement from Microsoft. This is back in the early days of the computer revolution. And their vision was a computer on every desk and in every home. They could have talked about market share or number of people using Windows, but instead their vision was a computer on every desk and in every home. And I feel like if they do that right, if they did that right, then so many good things would happen as a result. 
But I also work with people to think about not just vision statements at a company level, but also thinking about a vision for one's own leadership. Think, for instance, of a program manager that I worked with. She was stepping into her first ever role as a leader, managing a team of three people. And she came up with her own vision statement for how she would lead the team. And hers was, I ensure my team finds joy, fulfillment, and meaning in doing their best possible work each day. That's something that resonated with her and with her team and allowed her to be truly a servant leader or beyond yourself leader because she had a clear vision for how she wanted to show up for her team each day. So you're in the millennial generation and the idea of beyond yourself leadership as you define it, that's not all that common in the workplaces. Even, I mean, Greenleaf was way ahead of his time. And just to be clear to my audience, I am a huge fan of the concepts of servant leadership. I just think the terminology is, as you say, outdated. But let's just use your language beyond your self-leadership. How does that square with what you think was taught at Berkeley, say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 30 years ago? Is that a shift in thinking? Is that something that's always been taught in business, but we haven't really seen it play out in the workplace? I mean, it's a great question, and I can't speak specifically to Berkeley, especially since I don't myself even have an MBA. But when we think about business school education broadly, it used to be all about shareholder maximization and how can you just bring profits out of everything and i think that is absolutely changing now so you said that beyond yourself leadership might not be what's common in corporate america right now i think i would add the word yet to modify that because i think that's absolutely the trend in which we're headed so i think it's different from what we may have learned in business schools 20 or 30 years ago but i think it's undeniable that that's the trend and that's where leadership is heading today why do you say that I mean, that's encouraging words for me personally and specifically for our audience because we're all on board with it. But you said yet, also implying we're on this precipice and it's about to change. So why is it going to change? What's motivating the change? Why is the change happening now? Well, I look at the great work of so many of my colleagues at Berkeley. I think about Randy Pierce, who does amazing work on high impact teaming. And she finds that that's the type of leadership that actually gets results. Part of it is that we weren't actually researching these questions perhaps 30 years ago. And now the research, I think, is becoming more and more apparent. I also think about a friend and fellow colleague at Berkeley, Robert Strand, who does great work on rethinking American capitalism. And in that, he's looking at how sustainability is actually a strategic device. It's a strategic lens for companies. And so as we look at the challenges that our companies and our world are facing, it's calling out for a new type of leader. And I think there's a big opportunity here, hopefully galvanized by the new research and by the new teaching at business schools to rethink that leadership. What's teamability? High impact teaming is the work of, of Brandy Pierce, but her belief comes from this idea that we will do our most important work with others. So especially my undergrads that I teach, they often get into Berkeley based on being an amazing individual contributor. They are great at taking tests, do well on standardized tests and APs. But then when you think about the world that they inherit, collaboration is so key. As they step into their first job post-Berkeley or post-wherever they're attending, they're going to be working in groups. Even if you're a coder, you're going to have to work with a team, with a product manager, with a marketing team. And so she helps think about, well, what does high-impact teaming look like and how do we bring out the best in others? And to teach that early on as opposed to saying, well, I don't need to worry about collaboration until I'm thrown into it and then you have to figure it out on your own. So do your students struggle with the collaboration early on? I'm imagining that you're giving them 
team exercises, right? Projects, assignments, something that requires them to work with three, four or five other students that they may not have known prior to the class and then have to have it deliverable. And I'm imagining that students then have to report back on how well everybody in their team collaborated, cooperated. You know, were they selfish? Were they focused on getting it done themselves? Did they encourage others? Did they, you know, basically work well with one another? Is that part of your exercise? Yeah, that's right. So we start the semester early on and we do an exercise called the sinking ship exercise. <laughs> For those of you that are Berkeley fans, you'll appreciate that I call the sinking ship the SS Stanford. But so <laughs> <laughs> I get that joke. We say, okay, you're with a team and you're on the SS Stanford and the boat begins to sink. And you've got 15 items that are on board and you need to rank these 15 items in terms of which is the most important for survival. So I start by having everyone individually rank those items. Then I put them into groups of five or six, and then they have to collaboratively come up with their own ranking. I give them no guidance other than to say, work together and figure out a way to rank these. I do this for a couple of reasons. One, it throws them into this idea of collaborating without even thinking about it. They don't know that this is coming, so it's a bit of a surprise. I don't tell them how much time they have, so it simulates a bit of the chaos that can happen in the real world collaboration settings. But also what we find is that about 85% of students do better as a team. We, of course, compare individual rankings to the official U.S. Coast Guard rankings, right, to the expert rankings. We find that 85% of students do better as a team than individually. So only 15% of people are better off by themselves. 85% of them have a better chance of surviving when they work together. Then based off of that, we then go into learning things like humility and trust and collaboration and how to best work together. That then sets the stage for the final project of the class, which exactly, as you say, is a change maker project. And in that, they're working together in teams. And throughout the entire class, we try to find ways we can pull out what each person can contribute, how and how the team can be better than the individual parts on their own. When you say that 85% perform better as a team, what's the bottom line? Why? Because we all have blind spots. So you might find a team where one person was an Eagle Scout and they know exactly how important a compass is. Then maybe you have someone else who's practiced sailing and they can say, hey, you know, you know what? Instead of a fishing pole, we need to prioritize chocolate because it's more important to have food that you know will be there versus food you could get. <laughs> and so when people bounce ideas off of each other, new connections are made. We tap into our own individual expertise. We cover over some of those blind spots. We tend to make better decisions as a group than individually. I have a whole bunch of other questions, but one that just popped in my head is, how did you learn all of this? Like, in other words, how has this become your purpose? I jumped right into leading. So when I finished graduate school, I was the social entrepreneur. So I co-founded a social venture called Start Some Good. And I had basically no leadership training. Besides, I had led some student groups and, and so on. I had to figure all this stuff out just as I went. And I've always been naturally curious about leadership, but I just jumped in. And honestly, I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I did a lot of things really poorly, but I at least had the self-awareness to try to think about where I had a setback and how I could improve on that. So I led Start Some Good or co-led Start Some Good for about three years. And that was just jumping into the deep end. That was just figuring everything out as I went. But then as life happens, I fell in love with a woman. She got a job in Stockholm, Sweden and decided to move with her. And at that point, I took on a new job, which was running an incubator for social entrepreneurs throughout Scandinavia. And as I took that job, one, it allowed me to slow down my pace of life a little bit to read some of the leadership books I've been wanting to read that were just building up dust on my bookshelf. Hmm. 
but also to really reflect on everything I had learned over the last three years, all the mistakes I had made, and all of the new insights I had as a result. Fortunately, I also had the chance to begin teaching in some ways. So I was running this incubator, and on paper, my job was to help these entrepreneurs come up with new revenue models or how to measure their impact. But really, what I became was a leadership coach for them. I was helping them with how to fire their first employee when that was a really hard conversation to have, or how to think about bringing on a new product manager and delegating tasks. And the combination of a bit more space to think being able to read a bunch of leadership books I'd been wanting to read, and then also put these concepts into practice teaching was sort of the force that propelled me forward towards really thinking about how can we develop an approach to change making to leadership and then to begin teaching it. Very good. One of the books I imagine you read is The Leadership Challenge by Jim Cousins and Barry Posner. They're not that far from you up in Santa Clara. And their research shows that a huge percentage of people believe that managers specifically need to be forward-looking. So they want to work for someone who is capable of being forward-looking. And I'm curious, how does one develop that skill? Yeah, brilliant research by them. And so what I love is they ask tens of thousands of people, what are the traits you look for in a colleague? And what are the traits you look for in a manager or leader? And so in both cases, the number one trait for both colleagues and leaders is they wanted someone who was honest. That's super important. But then by far the biggest gap between what people look for as a colleague and a leader is being forward-looking, a 45 percentage gap between the two. So that means that we want our leaders to be forward-looking, to have the sense of the future and to go from there. I think my biggest piece of advice is that we have this pressure that we have to be this lone visionary. That's like we sit in our office and we have this epiphany and then we go, okay, this is the vision. But I try to teach vision in a very different way to be forward-looking and to make it much more collaborative. I go back to that example of the program manager that I worked with on her own vision. Well, she had a slightly different vision when she first started where she didn't include the word finding meaning in their work each day. But in talking with her team, she realized, well, meaning is something they really valued. And so then she, using a bit of her beyond yourself mindset, said, okay, that will be part of my vision as well. So I think we can find great inspiration from other vision statements and also make it much more collaborative. In some ways, the role of a leader is not to come with a vision completely by themselves, but to ensure that the conditions are in place, that everyone can weigh in and be part of that vision-making process together. I like that. Along those same lines, other research suggests that in the years to come, people will be recruited specifically based on their ability to deal with change and uncertainty. So how do we master those traits? There's a couple ways we can think about mastering those traits. The first is something that I like to call micro-change. This is one of the assignments I give to my students that I think they like the least. <laughs> but the idea here is if we can find a bit of comfort in doing small bits of change every day, it makes us a little bit better able to adapt to the bigger change. So I tell them, okay, in a given week, try out some of these examples of micro-change. Eat dinner for breakfast and breakfast for dinner. Take a completely different route to work or to school each day. Sleep on the opposite side of the bed as your partner or spouse. Small little bits of change, but wow, do these aspects of change make people really uncomfortable. I think it's a really good thing to put ourselves just a little outside of our comfort level. We can easily fall into that same routine over and over and over. I think some of my friends laughed at me and thought I took myself a little bit too seriously, but I decided instead of, I've been using the iPhone for, I don't know, seven years, and decided, you know what, I'm too comfortable. I'm going to go learn the Android OS and got an Android phone. Finding little ways to bring a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of change to just keep us nimble. 
The second thing, of course, is leaning into curiosity. There's so many reasons in our world today to sort of shut off curiosity from having micromanager leaders to just being so busy. And so I think we would do well to find ways to activate our curiosity once again, because I think that will help us remain adaptable and flexible with all the changes that are coming towards us. Those are wonderful answers. You stress the importance of leadership empathy whenever managers seek to implement change within a team or an organization. And why do you believe empathy is so essential in that regard? Well, I start with the terrific work that Patty Sanchez did. So she found that 50% of C-suite executives, when they're leading a change effort, they don't actively think about how those lower down in the power hierarchy will adapt to the change. So in other words, they're sitting in a conference room, they decide this is the right change effort, and then they communicate it out to the team without thinking, well, how might others be perceiving this change as well? Something that's so important I found in leading all types of change is that it's not enough to just be right. You could have the right strategy. You could be super clear on, look, we need to move our team into a digital transformation. You're probably right. But it doesn't matter if you can't bring people on board with you. And it's absolutely crucial to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Someone else might say, that sounds like a great strategy, but honestly, I'm really scared to do that. Maybe I can't keep up with it. Maybe that changes all of my workflows that I've already had. Doesn't mean that you're wrong with your strategy. It just means that in order to get them on board, you've got to see things for where they are and find ways to adapt your message and your change to where they are. Going back to that question about what's changed in the curriculum in business schools, when I read that statistic, it didn't surprise me at all. What surprised me, if anything, was the fact that 50% did <laughs> consider how people were feeling in implementing change. And what's interesting is, I think John Cotter at Harvard Business School proved that the only organizations that implement meaningful change are the ones that truly concern themselves with how their employees are feeling about that change. So it strikes me as interesting that it's 50%, but do you think the world is like Patty Sanchez? Is she having any impact in the world in terms of CEOs and senior leaders thinking about the way we make a change is going to ripple down and alter people's engagement and happiness and attitude about their work, even loyalty? Well, I certainly hope so. But even if they don't proactively believe Patty Sanchez, I think they'll have no choice but to believe her after they try to communicate without using empathy and see what happens. I think you'll find so many stalled change initiatives if people don't feel like they actually bought in on the process. And working with executive teams, one of my favorite pieces of advice to give them is to build an advisory board of staff and to make sure that the advisory board is representative of the diversity of the entire company, including across geographies and roles and levels. And to really run things by this group before communicating out, we each have so many blind spots and you can pretend you don't have blind spots or you can hope you don't have blind spots, but that doesn't mean that you don't have those blind spots. And so if you can find ways to proactively lean into that and ask others for advice and to honestly trust people when they give you feedback, it allows you to be such a more effective leader. So I hope that people will hear these words and be proactive like Patty Sanchez teaches us. But if not, I think after you try to lead a change initiative and you realize it fails, well, then that's good motivation to perhaps try it out the next time. Chunk that down to an individual manager level so they don't have an enormous number of people reporting to them. Do you recommend that they have the same kind of a council or do you recommend that they meet individually with everybody on their team to get their feedback on things that are actually a significant change initiative, for example. 
Well, if I'm the best change initiatives, have that buy-in. So people don't like to be surprised. So we tend to think as leaders, we have to come up with all the answers and then present this bulletproof plan to people. But I think most people would rather feel like they're part of the change effort from the beginning. So I encourage you to enroll your team in the change as much as possible. But even if you aren't high up on the corporate ladder, that's not an excuse to not have an advisory board. I'm also a big fan of the personal advisory board where you bring in people whom you admire. And maybe these are people more senior to you. But again, finding ways to check some of your blind spots. Just as a super small example, I'm a huge sports fan. I love talking sports. And one of my personal advisory board members helped me realize I tend to use too many sports analogies mm-hmm. all the time. So hitting the ball out of the park and so on. And that works for me as a huge sports fan, a guy who would watch ESPN constantly as a kid. But for someone who's not a sports fan, it doesn't feel that inclusive. And I probably wouldn't have recognized that on my own. But once I heard that feedback, of course the light bulb goes off. And of course there's other ways to say things besides a slam dunk. And that helped me become a better leader. You also have to be open to taking that kind of feedback, right? So somebody says, you know, Mark, you use a lot of sports analogies. I can say, well, so what? You know, it's who I am. What you're saying is, okay, it makes me happy to do it because I can talk sports all day. But if I'm trying to influence other people, I've got to be more inclusive. That's exactly right. So I look at the work that's done by Juliet Bork and Andrea Titus. They look at what makes people an inclusive leader. And so they have six traits of inclusive leaders. But here's what I love. They said that the strongest predictor of whether people feel included on your team is not whether you do each of these individually. It's at the intersection of two key ones. It's at the intersection of awareness of personal biases and humility. So it's the recognition that we all have biases and we have the humility to actually work on that. Now, not everyone will see that. But when you realize that the combination of these two statistically significantly leads to more feelings of inclusion on your team, I think that's a powerful insight to say, okay, it's not enough to just sort of have these awareness of bias. It's also the humility to say, yeah, and I could probably do something about it. You have to have a lot of self-confidence to pull that off. You have to be very secure in yourself is really what I'm saying. How do you cultivate that? So that's one of the great paradoxes of being a change maker, I think, is that we often think that there's these two like seemingly contradictory traits we need to have. So you need to be both impatient to lead change, but also be willing to be patient enough to lead long lasting change. I think another key paradox is being both confident and humble, or put in the words of Berkeley Haas, confidence without attitude. And so we often think that when we need to be both confident and humble, we should meet somewhere in between. That we should be like a little bit confident and a little bit humble. But in my writing, I try to change that notion. I try to say, no, it's not being somewhere in between where you're not that humble and not that confident, but instead you're being both at the same time. You're confident and humble. I think about the example of Gwen Yi Wong. Gwen was leading a company called Tribeless. She was the founder of it. She was leading the team. And by all external measures, it was thriving. The company was doing really well, based in Malaysia, but was scaling around the world. But internally, she felt a great sense of inner turmoil and conflict. She realized that they'd gotten to the point now in the team where her leadership was not the right leadership. She's a visionary. She's a product person. But the team needed someone who was an operationalized person that could do the spreadsheets, that could do the processes. And that just wasn't her. What I love about her is that she had both the confidence and the humility to realize it was time for her to step back. Through a number of difficult conversations with her co-founders, she decided, okay, I'm going to take the step back. I'm going to move into more of a product role. And I'm going to let someone else, in this case, my co-founder, step up as the CEO. 
you have to have the confidence to even put yourself out there to be a CEO in the first place. But it also takes so much confidence to say, look, I'm not the right leader at this point. And I'm going to have the humility to believe that there's someone else that could do this better than I could and to make way for that person. I think that's fantastic. The point that I'm taking away from all of this is that you have to really have humility. You have to have the ability to say, I'm a human just like you're a human. I have my limitations just like you do. I have to keep working on mine and help me identify the areas that I need to work on. And I think if every leader in the world had that self-awareness and was willing to kind of take a subtle punch in the stomach every once in a while, feedback that might make you wince but will make you grow just goes such a long way in terms of our development. Do you agree? It absolutely does. And I totally get if people are feeling like, well, that feels scary to me or that's not what I want to, to do. Right. But here's the thing. You could do it because it's the right thing to do. Or you could say, look, it feels weird to me to be humble. But if I just care about bottom line results, that's enough reason to do it anyway. I look at the great research done by Amy Al, David Waldman, and Suzanne Peterson. They had a study that's called Do Humble CEOs Matter? So they looked at 105 tech executives and measured them on their humility. And they found that when CEOs had humility, there were so many positive results from reduced pay disparity between themselves and their staff, more diverse management teams, greater innovation, less employee turnover, higher employee satisfaction, and increased bottom line results as well. And so even if you're skeptical of what I'm saying, saying like, ah, I don't want to be a humble leader, <laughs> just looking at the data showed that for bottom line oriented CEOs and executives, it still makes sense to be a humble leader. You're very resourceful, Alex. I'm asking these questions as they pop into my mind. And you, well, I've got research here from, <laughs> you're really, really good at this. So thank you. One of the things that I love about your book was learning about your school, UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, has four defining leadership principles. I just love the fact that they have values and that your dean was insistent upon creating them, even though, Apparently, there was resistance to having them, so you can speak to that. But let me just list them. The four are question the status quo, confidence without attitude, be on yourself, and be a student always. So course evaluations for you as a professor, embody them. So people are being held accountable to living these values. So they just seem so enlightened to me. I'm just so impressed with it. Tell us about them, how they're used, even some of the controversy within the organization of how did he maneuver to get everybody to support them? Well, it's amazing work done by our former dean, Rich Lyons. Rich took a short leave to go be the chief learning officer at Goldman Sachs, which of course has its own really powerful and unique culture. He came back to Haas and realized he was looking at the webpage and couldn't find the values listed anywhere. Now he realized that Haas had a latent culture. It's not like these were just made up out of thin air, but they weren't put down anywhere. They weren't codified. And so one of his first acts as dean was to make sure this culture was really pronounced and that people knew what these values were. As he did so, a lot of people bought in right away. So something like question the status quo, that feels very Berkeley. And I think a lot of people got that. But then there were some, especially faculty, that said, look, culture feels too squishy for me. I teach accounting. This isn't for me. And so what I love is Rich made one single ask of them. He said, look, the students are going to get this. The alumni are going to get this. A lot of faculty will get this. If you're skeptical, that's fine. Here's my one ask. Whatever you do, whatever you believe about our culture, just don't disparage these principles in front of students. Right? Keep it to yourself. Just don't 
get in the way. And every single faculty gave him their promise that they would do that. And so as a result, we now have these four defining leadership principles, which made a huge difference for me joining a business school, to be honest. I remember in my very first interview when I was asked, Alex, what's your favorite defining principle? And I love that in that interview, I could talk about beyond yourself and I could talk about my approach to leadership and sort of the connections between Greenleaf servant leadership and Haas's beyond yourself. It makes a huge difference for me, huge difference in the school. And it's something that can really anchor us as we think about, well, what are the type of leaders we want to create here? So just to nail it down, this is not just an expectation of you as a professor, but this is what you're looking for and trying to teach and imbue in students too, right? Absolutely. I run a program where we had a student who, let's just say, was confidence with attitude. Mm -hmm. And so when I sat down to talk with him, I used this framework. I talked about how we at Haas embody confidence without attitude and gave him feedback around that lens. It wasn't just out of nowhere that we think that humility is important or not having attitude was important. We actually used it as a means to have a meaningful conversation and to create change within that student. Well, kudos to Mr. Lyons is what I say, because the idea that these are the values that are being taught to future leaders, particularly when you think about where you are geographically, it's not to say that people going to Berkeley won't end up anywhere other than Silicon Valley, but there's just so many major employers there that they could have influence over that I just find it remarkable and, you know, a two-year program, people leaving with these ideas built into their consciousness, I just think is wonderful. So well done. Alex, we're going to take a quick break from our conversation and move into what we call the heartbeat round to help us learn a little bit more about you personally. I want to ask you several questions that we want to have you answer instinctively and quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. Willing to play? Ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Something important you specifically learned in the process of writing your book? <laughs> Probably that my grammar is not nearly as good as I thought it was. <laughs> Three really bad leadership traits you learned by observing other managers. Mm. Domineering, taking up all the space, and lack of humility. Besides being super intelligent, hardworking, and highly motivated, what's a quality or trait commonly shared by UC Berkeley students that we might not expect? I would say service orientation. So many of them want to find ways to make the world a better place. Wow. No wonder your class is so successful. <laughs> you have the roadmap. A book of any genre you wish everyone in the world, or at least all of us listening, would read. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Young Me Moon's book called Different. She's a branding professor at Harvard Business School, but the lessons in it, I think, are applicable to life, and I love books like that. Cool. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. A lack of self-awareness. Trait you most admire in other people? Courage. Cultural value every organization should have? A willingness to question the status quo. Lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life? That there's no one single path to success. Your synonym for the word heart? Faith. One thing you hope to see change in the world? That mental health becomes as highly valued and appreciated as physical health. Prediction about the future, you're pretty certain is going to come true. <laughs> exactly. My hope for the change that I just mentioned, that I do think that we're going to head that way, where mental health will be elevated in its importance. I read a statistic that said that on the trend line of healthcare expenses and mental health care expenses in organizations, that the cost for mental health care is about to transcend physical health care. Mm. So I think you're probably right. One subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on? Mm, philosophy and ethics. Anyone you recommend? 
don't go into any one single philosopher. Go into it with an open mind and make your own decisions as you read some of the classics. And something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Mm. Uh, hold a newborn baby. Uh, well, congratulations on yours. How old? Thank you. Uh, 20 months now. Congratulations. Those are wonderful answers. And thank you for going through that with me. Thanks, Mark. We've covered a whole lot of ground related to becoming a change maker. And I guess I just want to end this by asking, is there anything really important in your book, Alex, that I failed to bring up that didn't come up in the conversation, an idea that you want our audience noodling once the podcast is over? Thanks. I mean, Mark, you asked such terrific questions and it was such a fun, wide ranging interview. So I think the only thing I'll mention is just that the world needs you and the world has never been more ready for you to be a change maker. There's no one right way to be a change maker. The book is filled with ideas, tools, resources, stories to help you be that change maker. But we don't need you to be a clone copy of another change maker. We need you to stand on the shoulders of those who have come before you. And we need you to lead change in a way that's true to who you are from where you are. And so I hope you'll see this as a radically inclusive invitation and a reminder that the world has never been more ready for you. And I cannot wait to see what you do next. I love that. Thank you. You're an enlightened guy. You are a compact thinker and articulator. So we covered a lot of ground and you shared a lot of really interesting insights. So on behalf of my audience, Alex, thank you so very much. And we wish you very great success with your book. Uh, thanks, Mark. It's my pleasure. Appreciate you having me. Go Bears. Go Bears. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. As we close this episode, I'll make the same appeal as I've been making in recent ones, which is to please check out my book, Lead from the Heart, and consider picking up a copy for yourself and for your team. It's coming up on 500 Amazon reviews with well over a 4.8 average rating. And if you'd like to learn about how to hire me for speaking or consulting engagements, please go to my website, markccrowley.com. Our theme music is the 75-year-old jazz classic, Take the A-Train, and is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. I want to thank my talented and wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I'll leave you, as always, with my two consistent reminders. Number one, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now.